0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, the arrest of Nicola Sturgeon and the resignation of Boris Johnson. We review what have been a wild few days in British politics.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?
1: They're two of the most commanding, charismatic and controversial leaders the UK's had in decades. Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon. There will be an independence referendum. We will introduce legislation for a referendum. I one of
0: you can guess what this parliament is going to do once we put the withdrawal agreement back. We're going to get Brexit done.
1: Johnson relinquished power reluctantly last year after surviving a series of scandals and a vote of no confidence. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job
0: in the world. But them's the breaks.
1: Sturgeon, meanwhile, resigned as First Minister earlier this year on what seemed to be her own terms, saying she was exhausted by leadership. Giving absolutely everything of yourself to this job is the only way to do it. But in truth, that can only be done by anyone for so long. But stepping down as leader hasn't meant stepping out of the spotlight for either of them. With a scathing attack on those investigating him over Partygate, Boris Johnson tonight sensationally quit as an MP. On Friday, Johnson announced he was resigning as an MP, preempting what's due to be a scathing report into his part in the Partygate scandal. He said that the committee that's writing that report was determined to drive him out of parliament. Essentially, he jumped before he could be pushed. And on the way down, he took shots at his successor, Rishi Sunak too. Johnson's allies have claimed that Sunak meddled with his honours list. Sunak says he didn't, but that he couldn't allow Johnson to force through peerages for whomever he chooses.
0: Boris Johnson asked me to do something that I wasn't prepared to do because I didn't think it was right. Johnson, uh,
1: says Sunak, is talking rubbish.
3: A huge breaking news development in the last few seconds Meanwhile,
1: in Scotland on Sunday, Nicola Sturgeon was arrested as part of the police investigation into the SNP and how it spent party funds. She was released without charge. The weight of these two very different figures, once an asset to their parties, now hangs heavily over their successors. From The Guardian... I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the inescapable Sturgeon and Johnson. Pippa Creera, you're the political editor of The Guardian, and I know you're in the House of Commons right now, so people might hear a bit of commotion in the background because this has been a tumultuous few days for two of the most high-profile of the UK's former leaders, Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon. On Friday, Johnson announced he was resigning as an MP. Can you just remind people what he said in his resignation letter?
3: So yes, it's been an absolutely chaotic few days. I mean, we've got quite used to that in British politics recently, haven't we? But Rishi Sinek had tried to restore a degree of calm, you know, the grown-ups are in charge again. And then we had this moment on Friday after Boris Johnson's uh, resignation honours list was finally announced, uh, where he suddenly... Uh, Announced that he was going to stand down immediately as a Conservative MP because the investigation into the Partygate scandal found that he'd misled Parliament, and it recommended a lengthy suspension from the House of Commons, which meant that he would have probably faced a by-election. And he was absolutely furious. It was an angry, fist-swinging exit. Boris Johnson attacked the Privileges Committee, which he learnt yesterday had judged him guilty of willfully misleading Parliament
0: over lockdown parties. It had been a kangaroo court, he said, and he took
3: swipes at Rishi Sunak. He'd passively abandoned or junked Boris Johnson's most important policies. He accused that investigation, that cross-party investigation, the Privileges Committee as a majority of Tory MPs, are trying to drive him out, and he claimed there was a witch hunt underway, which he said was an attempt to take revenge for Brexit, and ultimately to reverse the, the 2016 referendum results. I mean, it was a pretty bitter statement. He attacked Rishi Sinek's government and he made it very clear that he felt that he'd not done anything wrong.
1: And we haven't seen the Partygate report yet, have we? That's due to come out this week. Um, but Johnson had been given a preview of it. What are we expecting it to actually say?
3: So ultimately, the Privileges Committee was looking at whether Boris Johnson misled the House of Commons on four or five separate occasions over what he knew about parties in Downing Street during the pandemic. And what it looks like it may have found, and like you say, we haven't seen the report yet, is that he deliberately misled the House of Commons. And either way, the sanction was going to be more than 10 days. And the point about it being more than 10 days is that that's the point, if the recommendation is agreed by MPs, that a recall petition could be triggered in his Uxbridge constituency, leading to a by-election. And Boris Johnson, it looks like, wanted to jump before he was pushed. He didn't want to face a vote of his peers in the House of Commons. He definitely didn't want to face a vote of his electorate, which he may not have won. And so he decided to get out on his own terms, but in a very, very angry way.
1: So he thought that the Privileges Committee report would result in his being suspended and potentially having to fight to be re-elected as MP for Uxbridge and Roycelip. So rather than go through the shame of that, he resigned with as much fuss as he could make. He called the Privileges Committee a kangaroo court and he said that it had performed a hit job on him. He also accused its chairwoman, Harriet Harman, who's a Labour MP, of course, of egregious bias against him. I mean, How fair does that seem to you? You know, who's on this committee?
3: Well, as I say, it's a cross-party committee and there's actually a majority of Tory MPs, even though Harriet Harman is the chair. And I think comments from Johnson, which are effectively reducing the reputation of the committee, which was set up with the full backing cross-party of the House of Commons to look into this, could mean he ends up in more hot water. And critically, it's not just Johnson. There are other MPs, some of his closest allies, that have also accused it of being a kangaroo court and biased and potentially undermining the integrity of that committee. And they could find themselves in trouble. You know, the committee is hitting back and making it known in no uncertain terms that it regards itself as being entirely impartial and fair and that it wants to uphold its own integrity. And... Johnson's
1: resignation, as you said, came just several hours after his honours list came out. Now, this is a privilege that every former Prime Minister gets to nominate people for peerages. There are some names missing from those that
3: Johnson put forward. What's happened? Well, there's two sets of names missing. I mean, I think one point which came out over the weekend, which was quite interesting, is that when the House of Lords Appointments Commission, which vets any list put forward by a prime minister for peerages, it struck eight of those names off the list and only put eight through. That's like a 50% success rate for the names that Johnson had proposed. So clearly there were names on there for whatever reason, whether it was indeed his father, Stanley Johnson, for example, or whether it was Tory donors or whatever it was, that the commission itself had decided shouldn't be on there. And then... Even when that final eight was published, we were expecting right up until the very last minute for there to be names of two of his closest allies, Nadine Dorries and Nigel Adams, who are both ministers in his government and have publicly defended him throughout his departure from from Downing Street and then afterwards as well.
2: Both were denied peerages, which Boris Johnson wanted to hand them. One minister couldn't be sure their resignations weren't a deliberate, coordinated attempt to destabilise Rishi Sunak. Your party now faces two by-elections in England, unwanted by-elections. Was this a deliberate attempt, do you think, by Mr Johnson, by Nadine Doris, to damage Rishi Sunak? (laughs) Look, I don't know. All I know is that
3: we're... And we're now in a position where the two of them have stood down, they're not going to get peerages, and we are going to get three by-elections, theirs and the seat, Boris Johnson's seat, which potentially are going to be very tricky for the Tory government.
1: Gosh, I mean, really a big mess, isn't it? That, you know, you've got Nadine Dorries, big Johnson ally, as you say, former Culture Secretary and Nigel Adams both standing down, three by-elections coming up now for the Tories. What have they both had to say about what's happened this weekend?
3: Well, it wouldn't surprise you to hear that Nadine Doris was also pretty angry about all of this, less actually about her own fate, it seemed, and more about what she, how she felt Boris Johnson had been treated. I mean, she was his number one defender throughout all of this. I think she's taken an almost maternal approach to supporting him, even though she's not that much older than him. And so it's no surprise that she thinks that the Tory party have made a huge mistake by, in her view, enabling his his departure, or at least not doing anything, to stop his departure. And she described him um, in one tweet as a tiger who had been undone by nibbling mice, suggesting that if there was no room for such a figure, politics had got too small. And then over the weekend, others of Johnson's allies, Jacob
1: Rees-Mogg, who is going to be knighted uh, as part of the honours list, uh, have come out to defend him. But how big would you say the support... For Johnson
3: seemed over the weekend? Well it seemed a lot smaller after the weekend than it did before the uh, suggestion on Friday was very much that it wouldn't just be those three by-elections which would be coming the other Allies of Johnson would decide to go to cause more by-elections and therefore create a much bigger headache for Rishi Sunak. Now that's not happened. Whether that's because of a sort of a really good, uh, efficient whipping operation by Rishi Sunak's whips, or whether it's because actually the support was overstated in the first place, and those individuals have decided that while they may not be happy about the situation and Boris Johnson leaving Parliament, may even think there's a future for him leading the Tory Party at some point, that now is not that time. And then you've had
1: Grant Shaps, for example, who served under Johnson saying, you know, the world has moved on from this man.
3: Yes. And Michael Gove say- saying similar things on Monday. We also quoted in Monday's Guardian, Tim Loughton, a senior conservative and former minister, saying that uh, it was time for Boris Johnson to shut up and go away. Um, I think that the main body of Tory MP opinion, and I specifically as AMPs, because obviously Boris Johnson is still very popular amongst Tory members. I just think it's time for an end to the psychodrama, that actually plunging the Conservative Party into civil war at this point is the worst thing they could do in the run-up to what is anyway going to be a very difficult election for them. And that if they want to try and convince the public that they're capable of governing, that sticking with Rishi Sunak, even if they're not his biggest fans, is the best route for them right now. So you don't think this is going to have major repercussions for Rishi Sunak then? Well, I think it's going to have repercussions in that he's going to have a sort of an internal um, rebellion, maybe not all that civil war, but he's definitely going to have to take some steps to calm things down in his party. And, you know, the Tory party always had a reputation for being unified in the face of anything that was thrown at it. It is anything but unified at the moment. And that will be problematic for Sunak as he goes forward. There's key issues, some of which Boris Johnson touched on, that he thinks Sunak isn't doing enough, isn't being conservative enough. In the run-up to the next election, there were things like a US trade deal, delivering the benefits of Brexit, levelling up, and crucially, tax cuts, with which a lot of Conservative MPs have a great deal of sympathy with Johnson's position. And Where he will be relieved, and where it is easier for him, is that Johnson may well be shouting from the sidelines, but it is going to be very much from the sidelines. It's going to be from newspaper columns, it's going to be from TV shows, it's not going to be from within Parliament. And that means that he's got no capacity to organise a formal rebellion which could end up with him at its helm and him returning to office in Downing Street. Meanwhile, the MPs on the Privileges Committee
1: have been getting threats from some of Boris's fans and they've now had to have increased security. Have they been able to speak about how all of this has been for them? And and what's going to happen next
3: with that report? They haven't been able to speak yet, but we're expecting the report to come out at any moment and be published in full. But it really, I think, says something about the state, um, that the state of this particular row, uh, how low some of those Johnson supporters have gone that those committee members now need security, now need protection because of some of the threats that have been issued. And I think that really is awful and that, frankly, um, some of those individuals that have been introducing their committee's integrity should feel ashamed of themselves.
1: Will their report still have teeth, given that he's stepped down?
3: So the ultimate sanction was, of course, prompting a vote which could lead to a by-election. But I think we're all fascinated to see... Whether there was anything in it which, when he was shown an advance copy, Boris Johnson thought, oh, I'm not going to be able to survive this, or whether it was just the the recommendation of a longer sanction than he'd been expecting. But, you know, it will give a lot of sort of detail and fill in lots of the, the blanks that we haven't yet filled in as to, you know, how the committee felt and and sort of what they were being told about whether he deliberately misled Parliament or not. Don't forget they've seen a lot of the information which has now been handed over to the COVID inquiry. Whether that changed their minds or made them toughen up their sanction, uh, we'll have to wait and see until until that report is published.
1: Okay, so it still can have a potentially huge effect on Boris Johnson's reputation and his ability to come back in whatever guise he tries to. And then separately in Scotland on Sunday, Nicola Sturgeon, the former First Minister, was arrested and released without charge. Now that's as part of the inquiry that's going on into how the SNP has spent money that was donated to them for the Scottish independence campaign. What are the police looking into
3: by arresting her? So there's three key figures when it came to the SNP's finances and them being signed off. One was the party treasurer, who was arrested first and interviewed under caution, Colin Beattie. The next was Peter Murrell, who was chief executive of the SNP and therefore the buck stopped with him. It should have been right across all the finances. Also happens to be Nicola Sturgeon's husband. And it was inevitable that the third of the senior figures was going to have to be interviewed under caution at some point. So um, I think there was an expectation that Sturgeon would be arrested. It was done by appointment in advance. She was brought in. There was seven hours of questioning. But despite that expectation, I think for many people... It came as a huge shock because regardless of whether um, people were on the pro-anti-independent side of the debate, she was seen as a consummate politician that managed to navigate the difficulties of the austerity era of the pandemic all sorts of issues thrown at her in government with a sort of a, a common touch and a political dexterity that not many politicians have been able to, to emulate that made her an incredibly successful politician. And even though she has clearly protested her innocence and we don't have the results of any of the police investigation yet, to even go from you know, being top of her political world to being arrested and questioned by police in relation to this strikes many as like a real kind of fall from grace.
1: And we should say Colin Beattie and Peter Murrell have denied doing anything wrong. But this investigation leaves a huge problem for Humza Youssef, who's Scotland's first minister. Now, you know, he was elected in March after Sturgeon resigned and his whole term in office so far has had this cloud of the investigation hanging over it. He's again having to answer questions about
3: how the SNP manages itself. What's he going to do? It's very difficult for him, because as you say, it's distracting from the agenda that he wants to promote. And he was the continuity Sturgeon candidate in the SNP contest. So he's very closely aligned to her and her administration. In fact, he was part of her administration. He served several roles in that.
1: It's been pretty personally painful, if I'm honest. I think people know and have heard me talk about my personal uh, friendship, my, my, my admiration uh, for Nicola Sturgeon, so I know how difficult a day would have been, not just for her, but the entire party uh, and for the SNP.
3: And what's been interesting over the last couple of days is that slowly there are senior SNP figures coming out the woodwork and saying he should suspend her from the party.
1: No, I won't be suspending Nicola Sturgeon. I'll be treating her exactly in the same way as I treated, for example, Colin Beattie, both released without charge, and therefore there's no reason for me to uh, suspend them.
3: her. Approach generally, erred on the on the sort of the quite strict side, she suspended quite a lot of people that had any questions about them, pending investigations and inquiries.
1: Coming up, what's next for Johnson and his former constituents?
2: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash today in focus today to get 10% off your first month. That's com slash today
1: in focus. Pippa. It's always seemed like Boris Johnson was going to make a political comeback. Now he's resigned as an MP. How likely is that? And what else might he do? You know, is he is he going to go back to his former career as a journalist?
3: I was very struck by his resignation statement when he hinted he might try to make a return to politics. He said he was very sad to be leaving Parliament, at least for now, I mean, he couldn't help himself. He couldn't resist. I think in the short term, he'll go away and he'll, sort of, he'll nurse his wounds. But uh, in the meantime, we'll make an incredible amount of money on the international speaking circuit. He's already made five or six million quid since he stood down as prime minister. I think we'll see more of that to come. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a, uh, a well-promoted newspaper column in, a, in the right-wing media and indeed perhaps even a television show, one of the newer TV stations out there. I have covered Boris Johnson really since the mid-naughties, so a long time, best part of 20 years. And um, he's been written off so many times that I have learned to say never, say never, that a comeback is always possible from the you know, this greatest of political chameleons. But this time does seem different because he has become so disgraced, and so discredited. He's he's a divisive character these days in a way he wasn't when he was mayor of London and seemed to be a unifying one. And crucially, that core support among specifically among Tory 2019 voters who moved to support the Conservatives for the first time in part because Boris Johnson was leading them at that point, that has dropped away. And if the public has changed their mind about Boris Johnson, he is no longer the electoral asset that he's always liked to think he might be. The COVID inquiry has just started as
1: well, and Johnson is, of course, heavily implicated in that. So,
3: you know, he could be in the headlines for years over that. The rest of this year, we're going to see people like Boris Johnson come up and give evidence. And as you say, the inquiry is going to rumble on for months, if not years to come. And he was the key player in all of that. So, yes, he's absolutely going to remain in the front line, albeit not from within Parliament, uh, for a very long time to come. So any Conservatives that think that they've they've got rid of him and this is it, well, I think they might have to think again. And more importantly
1: than Johnson's future at the moment is what happens for people in his former constituency, Uxbridge and Roy Slip, and in those of Nadine Dorries and Nigel Adams in mid-Bedfordshire and Selby and Ainsty. What's likely to happen in those by-elections, do you think?
3: Well, they're going to have an awful lot of focus on them, more so than obviously during a general election. In Uxbridge and in Selby, I think Labour stands a very good chance and will be throwing everything at trying to take those seats. That would be a massive change in Uxbridge, wouldn't it? Because it's always been
1: in Conservative control.
3: Yeah, but it, the majority um, is sort of you know single figure thousands now, and the Tory party's best chances there are picking like a well-respected local candidate. But Labour's definitely with, in with a chance there. And in Selby, I think Mid Bedfordshire, Nadine Dorries' seat, is a bit more complicated. It's a majority of more than twenty thousand on paper. The Tories should take it easily. And Labour came second at the last election. The Lib Dems, however, are making the case that they think that they would be best placed to take some of those Tory votes that went to Dory's last time, and that they could leapfrog over Labour into first position, and I think if they're both taking it seriously and neither is kind of like, you know, unofficially stepping back and letting the other come through, then you risk them splitting the vote and the Conservative candidates, whoever that ends up being, coming through the middle. So that's a slightly more complicated picture. But either way, three by-elections in a short period of time, two of which uh, could result in losses, for Rishi Sunak is not good news. And all this chaos should be good for Labour in England.
1: How about in Scotland? You know, all the chaos around the SNP inquiry. Do you think Labour is going to be able to use this as an opportunity to increase their support?
3: I think they're going to try. There was a general feeling that a Labour rebirth in Scotland, don't forget that at one point they held almost every Scottish seat and, you know, they're now in a position where they hold just one, it was always going to be a long, hard, uphill struggle. And there was a feeling that. It was never properly going to happen while Nicola Sturgeon was still in post. So her leaving, standing down as First Minister, is the biggest gift that the SNP could have given to the Labour Party in Scotland, which anyway is going through a process of renewal. And polls certainly suggest that it could potentially take a couple of dozen seats there. They're a way to go from that just yet, but could take a couple of dozen seats there, which would make all the difference um, UK-wide, if Labour also did well across England and Wales, between them having a hung parliament and them winning a majority, which would obviously be crucial in terms of uh, getting through the agenda that that they want to introduce.
1: The stories of Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson are, of course completely different. But the reason we're talking about them in the same breath is not only because of the timings of these huge stories over this past weekend, but also because they're these two titans of UK politics. And the drama around them is making the jobs of those currently in power, you know, Hamza Yousaf and Rishi Sunak, much harder. How are those leaders going to move on while they've got these predecessors attracting so much attention?
3: I think for both of them, it's very difficult while these issues are still live. So in Sturgeon's case, while the police investigation is still ongoing, and in Johnson's case, while he's still kind of like angrily reacting to leaving parliament and there's a fallout with the by-elections, they will hope that if they keep their heads down, focus on delivery, focused in Rishi Sunak's case on improving the economy, that they will be able to persuade the public that the grown-ups are in charge and that there isn't, you know, this drama and internal Tory party strife in the case of Sunak is not uh, what the party's about, that they can, in fact, uh, deliver and get things done and put the interests of the public, sorting out the NHS tackling the cost of living crisis um, at the fore and that the personalities, those big, big personalities, uh, recede. But as we've seen again and again and again with Boris Johnson, he is not somebody to go quietly. I think we're going to hear from him for a long time to come and that makes life difficult for Rishi Senak. Pippa, thank
1: you very much.
3: Thanks for having me. That was Pippa Creera,
1: The Guardian's political editor. You can keep up with her reporting at TheGuardian.com. And I'd recommend doing so because she is well known for breaking exclusive stories. This episode was produced by Natalie Katena and Courtney Youssef. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. And the executive producer was Hummer Khalili. We'll be back tomorrow.